Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This podcast is sponsored by Royal London, who, as proud sponsors of One Day Cricket, are also the UK's largest mutual life pensions and investment company, providing financial services to millions of people across the country. To find out more, visit www.royallondon.com. Hi, I'm Simon Hughes. Welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. I'm on a diet after the Edgebaston test, which of course was a day-night test, but just the food was endless, wasn't it? And very good, actually. Just as well. It only lasted three days. I'm not sure West Indies are, are thinking that. What a woeful performance. Uh, I'm Simon Mann. Well, pick the bones out of that, Simon. It was a, a dis- dispiriting test match in a way. I mean, it well played to England, but West Indies were so poor. The best bit about it was the food, you know, just, just eating all the time, wasn't it? Because it was sort of lunch at normal lunchtime and then another lunch at four o'clock and then tea at 6.40. And then when you got back to the hotel or kind of at the end of the day, you, you had another feed as well. So definitely had to do some training yesterday. And thank God it did only last three days. Yeah, the, the cricket was, was disappointing, obviously. I mean, I thought the West Indies probably weren't going to be very good, but they were worse than I expected. Mm. Uh, I think that's... They're the worst West Indies side has ever been here. In fact, they've gradually got worse every time they've come here. In 2000, they were still competitive. And well, they were, they were beaten on, in two days in 2000, weren't true. they? And they had lots of, but they had lots of very good players then. And, and that, that series was in the balance for a couple of tests, mm. and then it all went horribly pear-shaped for the West Indies after that. Brian Lara was still playing in that team, as he was su- subsequently. But uh, now they just don't ha- seem to have any real firepower with the ball and absolutely no aptitude with the bat. So it's men against boys. Well, I was sitting in the, in the dining room while you were eating a meal before the third day's play. And I said to you, this game could end today. It's not inconceivable this game could end today. And you looked at me to say, you're mad. Well, because at the time, the West Indies, after the, the second day, had looked OK. They're batting were sort of 40 for one, weren't they, overnight. And the numbers two and three had looked okay against Anderson and Broad. And actually the main reason I I think I thought it would certainly go to a fourth day was I thought the pitch was so flat. You know, Alistair Cook ground out his excellent 240 and England got that big score. 
And I just thought, well, there's, the ball's doing nothing on here. So there's every chance that the West Indies will at least get 250 or 300 even. But, I mean, the way they capitulated was just embarrassing. You know, well predicted by you. And, and actually, the pitch in the end just did enough. Yeah, it did. It, well, it was a bit up and down, wasn't it? And there was a little bit of turn for, for Mo and Ali. But, well, just analyse some of the, the West Indian techniques. What, what was the problem? What, what do they need to sort out technically? There's just no defence at all, basically. They have no idea about how to stay in. They've got shots. There's no doubt there is uh, some flair. You know, there's some talent in terms of shot making. But in it, actually just staying in for a few overs, they're not able to do it. They're, they're, the, the footwork is non-existent. They're all playing drives on the walk, uh, sort of stuck on the crease and then shuffling into, into line too late. Uh, not really playing back or forward, having wafts outside off stump without really paying due care and attention to who's bowling or how they're trying to get the, the batsman out, just having a bit of patience and watching the ball go by for a while to get the conditions and understand the bounce and so on. Th there's no patience. There's no plan, really. They just seem to go out there and have a bit of a flirt with the ball and they soon get out. And there's no way, there's no way they can turn things round in, in three or four days before heading me, is there? I, I can't see it. Obviously, in mitigation to their technical deficiencies, they're up against, in terms of Anderson and Broad, two of the greatest bowlers England have ever produced, with 860 wickets between them. So it's a tall order in English conditions, coolish weather, Obviously, a ball with a pretty high seam, which they're not used to playing against. Even the pink ball has a, a nice seam that the bowlers can use. So it, there are not too many things in their favour, if you like. But I can't see any change, even though they have they may have so-called learnt, in inverted commas, from that experience at, at Edgbaston. I can't see how they can improve, because I just don't think there's any ability. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a damning indictment, damning verdict on them, on them really. We're going to hear from uh, Sir Viv Richards a little later on, his verdict on this West Indies side, what they need to improve. We're also going to hear from him talking about his favourite shot and his most famous shot. They're not necessarily the same thing. So, so keep listening. What, what do we make of the, the pink ball, Simon? Did, did the whole sort of pink ball day-night experience work? I think the ball itself held up very well. I examined it after the first day's play when England obviously batted all day and it was a very good shade of pink. It was still a great shape. It still felt firm. It was excellent. It didn't polish up too well, but we kind of predicted that anyway because it doesn't have the grease on it that the red ball does, so therefore it's quite hard to shine up. So it's never going to swing too much. And obviously Alistair Cook didn't have any problems seeing it from a batting perspective. In fact, he scored 193 for Essex in the day-night experience and he scored 243 for England. So that's, that's what's that, 430 runs in two innings uh, against the pink ball. He obviously loves it. What about you from a, a commentary perspective? Well, I think sometimes it seemed to disappear. I mean, the last wicket of the match, in fact... Was I just went on the sort of the mime of the of what looked like an outside edge, and then Stokes throwing the ball up at, at third slip. I just you know assumed he must have caught it, and the and the game was over. I didn't see the ball; it just went quickly. But then that that can happen with the red ball sometimes. It can also happen definitely with the white ball. I've commentated. I remember on the end of a of a Lord's final in 2012 in September when the you know the sun had really dipped and the light was really strange and the the whole square is quite light. 
and the last ball of the match, Cavi Rally bowling to Neil Carter. The ball, he, he ran up to bowl and it just seemed to disappear. I had no idea what happened, which is quite embarrassing when you're supposed to be telling people what because it was a, you know, the last ball finished. Quite embarrassing when you're supposed to be telling people what the end result of the game is. And none of the players seemed to react initially either. What had actually happened is he looked to hit it through the offside. I thought he had because he, he looked the way he played it. And he actually missed the outside edge, went through to the wicketkeeper. And that's why he just disappeared so quickly. He was in the wicketkeeper's gloves. But, none, but the, the fielding team didn't react. Anyway, that, that was just one of those embarrassing moments that sometimes happens to commentators. But he didn't always... Didn't always pick it up, and actually, some people watching on television as well said, you know, sometimes you needed the fielder to be alongside the ball to to pick it up. But I mean, clearly, it, this is going to stay with us, isn't it? We're going to have more, much more pink ball cricket. England got two pink ball test matches in the winter. They've got a pink ball warm up in Adelaide as well, and the fact that quite a few of their batsmen didn't have much of an opportunity against the pink ball, certainly under lights. I mean, they, you know, they're going to need all the practice they can, they can get before they go to, to Adelaide, actually, for the, for the Test match, which is the second one of the Ashes series. There's not going to be any more pink ball cricket in England for a while, at, at this level anyway, because next year and the year after doesn't work for the, the schedules and so on. So it's, it's going to be pink ball test in 2020 at the earliest here. I sort of sympathise with what you're saying about seeing it actually from a commentator or spectator point of view I went and sat in the Eric Holly's stand for a couple of hours what was your fancy dress well I, what, yeah my fancy dress was good I tried the uh, the Mexican outfit on with the big sombrero and I dressed up as a Frenchman briefly as well with the the string of garlic around my neck and the you know the stripy uh, shirt and the beret and I, I think I preferred the Mexican outfit actually and that it was definitely better because of the the, the shawl for the evening cool was ideal. And by the way, there's, there is a, a good new song they'd invented while they were there when Mo and Ali's bowling. One man went to Mo, yeah. went to Mo and Ali. I thought that was that was a nice sort of adaption of a you know children's song. <laughs> and just as I was there, he took a wicket mowing. So so that was that was good. It wasn't easy to see the ball actually uh, at sort of twilight. But I don't think it's that easy to see the red ball from side on either. So mm. I, I don't have a problem with the, with the ball from a spectator's point of view. And from a batting point of view, it was certainly fine. Yeah, I sat side on at the Oval during, on the, the Saturday of the Oval Test match for a while. And sometimes you, a Rabada was bowling. Sometimes you really, you know, you just have to look at the where it's going to pitch, don't you? And hope you can pick it up. Just occasionally... Bowls a, a quick short ball. Just the next thing you see is the, the wicketkeeper sort of taking you. You know, you follow the mime almost from square on, but you do get a sense of how fast the bowling is, which mm. you don't always do yeah. from from straight on. The principle of of day night cricket in in England, day night test cricket, I don't think particularly works. I mean, it was interesting to see that a lot of people started to leave at about eight o'clock, mm. and maybe that was because they, they didn't see much of a contest going on, but. If you bought tickets, you're normally going to stay till the end. And a lot of people wandered off at about eight, probably to go and have dinner, understandably. And I, I just think the experience of watching Test cricket at night in England in 14, 15 degrees doesn't really work. It does. It, it's fine for day-night, one-day cricket because there's more buzz about that somehow and there's more of a sort of party atmosphere. And I think it doesn't matter. It's a bit like sitting out in a, an evening football match. It, it, there's a bit more kind of going on in a way, so you don't feel the cold so much. But in a test match, I, I, I'm not sure it really works. I think they're a bit unlucky, to be honest. I, I mean, in August, you, you think the weather might be a bit balmier in the evening. It just was. We were just in, in a in a week in a, in a run of days where it was very cold, and the evening had the rain as well. One evening, 
uh, what I'd like to see is a day-night test where, which is competitive between two, you know, two yeah. really competitive sides. And if they, the authorities did get a bit lucky with the weather or luckier with the weather, so it was nice and warm, whether people would then stay till 9, 9.30 in the evening. I, I, think they, I think they probably would, but I mean, that first day, uh, I spoke to a lot of people afterwards, and they said, well, you know, England racked up 350 for three or whatever it was. It, it was a terrible day's cricket because there, there was just no contest. Yeah, it was a shame. And I, I suppose on that line, with, with the, the, the no contest kind of theme, you do wonder what West Indies can do to to try and rebuild or reconstruct a, a stronger test team. There were lots of great West mm. Indies cricketers knocking around. Uh, there was Kirtley Ambrose, there was Andy Roberts. I met Lance Gibbs one afternoon. Viv Richards, obviously the most prominent of all. And, yeah, I just thought, thought I'd have a little chat to him about what he thought the West Indies could do. And he, he did sound a positive note or two. They're a bunch of talented kids, but they have been in an environment where there's a lot of dog fight, not just maybe the, the encounters that they would have had on the field, but off it with the establishment who's supposed to be looking after them and making sure that they prepare themselves to do battle. Um, I just believe now they, they lack the mental strength, in, in my opinion, and you need people around. Let's forget all these psychology, the psychologists and all these people. The people who have played, people who have an idea how to win and how you should go about winning and have that belief. And these are some of the skills that I think some of these youngsters need today. Some of these youngsters need um, their, 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 their self-confidence not, not as good. You, you look at the West Indian team walkout on the cricket field in the modern day now. We haven't got that panache as they once had. I think we need to get that back. And the only way you can get that back is having people around them who would have had an idea how wars are fought and how wars can be won. And that's um, sporting battles I'm talking about. Yeah, of course. Um, and w- so does that mean you would like to be involved more or you should um, get some I'm of the Kirtley I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying um, I, I should be involved, but I think these are some of the ingredients that's missing. And how, and how can you see, a, can you see a, a light at the end of the tunnel? I always say there's always light. I'm one of these individuals uh, uh, here again. I, I'm one of these individuals who deals with a lot of quotes, quotes that would have um, been positive to maybe my upbringing as a person, my, uh, my life as a sports person. Uh, Jesse Jackson, let's keep hope alive. Well, there we go. Keep hope alive, says Sir Viv. More from him later when he talks about his, his favourite shot, his most famous shot. We should just say who the West Indies backup staff is at the moment. The coach is Stuart Law. The bowling coach is Roddy Estwick, who played... Uh, 37 first-class matches for Barbados, and Toby Radford, who played at Middlesex. I played with him a bit, actually. Yeah, he was a, a tenacious opening batsman, Toby Radford, and he'd done all these coaching badges. He's, you know, he's fully qualified. He's done a fair bit of coaching around the world, and I'm sure he's doing an absolutely brilliant job trying to help these guys. It's very difficult if they haven't got much actual talent or much actual technical skill anyway. I guess there is a, a small light at the end of the tunnel for, for the West Indies, and that is that I, I met Andrew Strauss actually at the test, and he said that the ECB are doing quite a bit of work with the West Indies board, importing coaches into the West Indies to help their coaches. So it's almost coaching coaches mm. to just preach a, a more 
sophisticated game, really, and, and work with young players. It needs to start at the bottom. A lot of these guys have grown up with poor kind of technical habits, mainly through probably playing one-day cricket. The standard of domestic cricket in the West Indies isn't that great. Certainly the standard of club cricket in the West Indies isn't particularly good either, which is where all of the great players came from originally. And so to start from the bottom, to send out some coaching experts to really get the, the West Indies coaching infrastructure better is, is a good effort from the ECB and hopefully it will produce some rewards. Well, that's good to hear. They also need to do something about their pitches as well. I think they need to dig them all up and get some pace into them. I think that, that, the, that the intention is there to do that. Curtly Ambrose was, was telling me about that. You know, the pitches are, are just slow. They're, they're spin-friendly or not. You know, they, they're slow turners, really. And they just need to, they need to get some pace back into their pitches. And, get, and in a way, sort of go back to, to what, what they were used to be good at, which is that, that fast bowling strength and encourage fast bowlers t- to come through. And that was and that West Indies attack, where, I mean, was... Mm. I mean, you, when you compare it, I, there barely is a comparison with what we used to see in the, the 80s and the 90s and the 70s as well. Actually, Kemar Roach, I thought, did well. He, he's lost a little bit of pace since the last time he was here. He's had a few injuries, but he was someone that they could build an attack around. But they need... What I find so amazing is just some colossal physique like Jason Holder bowling at 78 miles an hour. So they definitely need some input, some injection of pace when the bowling. And some better technical expertise and understanding in the batting. That's West Indies. What about England? A big double hundred from Cook. Wickets from Broad going past Ian Both. I thought Anderson bowled superbly. But did we really learn anything about England <laughs> from that test match? I mean, I mean, can you learn anything about England from that test match? I mean, I thought, you know, Alistair Cook, he thought, here's a great opportunity. I'm not going to make the most of this. And mm. after a difficult series against South Africa, where he said, he said during the game that, you know, that test series against South Africa is one of the toughest he's ever played in in terms of, of batting. You know, all four test matches played on pitches that, you know, that gave something to the bowlers and, a, and against a good attack as well. He was just sort of few. You know, his, <laughs> decent, this is a decent attack to get some runs against. And, and we didn't learn anything about Cook, but we were reminded mm. how incredible his concentration is, his ability to totally detach himself from who's bowling or what the situation is and just play his game. I thought it was amazing that even though they were bowling part-time spinners, you know, rather than run up the wicket like David Milan did and tried to hit a couple over the top and sort of semi-succeeded, Cook just stayed playing his own methodical game, waited for the short one, cut it away off the back foot, worked it into the leg side. Never once did he step out to drive what looked to me like a third-rate spinner. I guess he he just reasoned, well, he's going to bowl me a bad ball eventually. I'll just wait for it and put it away. And he did. And that's how he bats. And he batted like that for 10 hours. And I hugely admire that because it must be so tempting to sometimes think, oh, I fancy just sort of having a bit of fun here. Yeah. I've, I've got 200. Let's have a bit of fun. Let's cut a few into the holy stand. But no, he, he, he just carries on in his own inexorable way towards the next milestone. Of course, he's now the, the leading test run scorer at Edgbaston and I think at one other ground in England. And he, by the end, by the time he's finished, he'll be the leading test run scorer in every ground in England. He might be the leading test run scorer full stop in, in all grounds anywhere in the world. He's got, he's got quite a bit to do, hasn't he? He's very fit. I suppose it just 
question of whether he can you know, keep it going sort of mentally, technically well, in, in right the next three or four years. Yeah, you're right about the fitness because there were times towards the end. Of, I mean, Johnny Bairstow came in, didn't he, towards the end of his innings. He'd already had 200. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, Johnny Bairstow is going to be herring up and down the wicket. And poor old Cookie, age, you know, early 30s, he's going to tire. But he didn't. He ran the twos for, for Bairstow and ran the twos for himself. And he looked a, was it fresh as a daisy. Fantastic. Stuart Broad, is he still looking fresh as a, a daisy? He wants to. He says he wants to play in the 2019 Ashes series, which is only what a couple of years away. He's amazing, isn't he? He just gets on these rolls of of wicket taking sprees, and it sort of looks innocuous for a while. But Michael Vaughan said about him when he first captained him, actually, that he's the most intelligent bowler he ever played with. Which I suppose doesn't say an awful lot about bowlers <laughs> in a way. But well, he never played with you, Yoz, did he? Not <laughs> just as well. Uh, he is an intelligent bowler. He just thinks out the way to take wickets and how to unsettle batsmen. And then once he gets that first ball through the gate or however he gets the wicket, then he just sort of bursts through. He's like a, a, a sort of oncoming tide, sort of building up and building up momentum. Technically now, he's much better against left-handers because he swings it away, moves it away from left-handers. He struggles to move it away from right-handers, but he's still... I think what he does most of all is he hits that sort of horrible bit of the pitch, that length, where you can't really go forward or back. And he's got that height as well. And he just does a little bit with the ball. And you're never quite sure which way it's going to go. But he does it just enough all the time from that high action and that relentless attitude and totally deserves the rewards he's got. And they'll want to give Chris Wokes a test match before the end of the series, but I can see some bowlers thinking, hold on a second. They're yeah. just, just like Cook wants to yeah. fill his boots against the West Indies bowlers. The, the bowlers will want to fill their boots, won't they, against West Indies batsmen? Totally, and Anderson's on the verge of 500 now. I think he needs about eight wickets yeah. to get to 500. What what you don't want, actually, which happened a couple of times in, in that West Indies test, was people got run out. You know, and, and you, you as a bowler thinking, no, don't run the tail enders out. I want to get those wickets because they don't count for me, the run outs. So two test matches to go, uh, bleak, bleak for West Indies. Yeah, it's a shame. Uh, and I, I wonder what they've really learned or what they will have, uh, have gained out of it, really. But I, I guess you have to play tests to, to try and get better. They're young, uh, most of them. So, you know, there's a chance to sort of look back at the experience and it's not going to get any harder than playing Anderson and Broad day-night pink test at Edgbaston facing them at twilight and then up at Headingley. Headingley test match pitches are not as seamer friendly as they used to be but still you sort of imagine overhead conditions coolish evenings sort of five o'clock time or mornings it's going to be tough work. What they need to do, it seems to me, is, is well, hope it's on Friday morning, hope it's overcast and sort of dank and a bit humid and, and, and win the toss and perhaps a bit damp as well, win the toss and try and get into England's batting lineup because it's still it's still fallible, isn't it? We, we saw in that test match, Stoneman's first test, he got a very good ball. Jeffrey yeah. thought it was a straight one, but he sort of analysed it and then and Wesley didn't, didn't get any runs as well. There's, there's still some fallibility at the top order. They really you know, get amongst England if they could. I mean, this is This is really sort of stretching it. You know, bowl them out for 200 and, and try and get past them and put some pressure on if they can. Well, you have to try and believe you can do that and that's, that's a good way of looking at it. Get England in, put them under pressure, get Wesley, who still looks a bit vulnerable to a straight ball, alarmingly, uh, trying to play around it a bit too much. 
Stoneman obviously hasn't got to grips with Test cricket yet, though I think he will. And then Milan, who played pretty well at, at Edgbaston but should have got a hundred, he missed a big opportunity there to really stamp his authority and say, right, you know, I'm in this team for the next year and a half. I'm going to get a hundred here and really establish myself. And he got sixty. It was a nice sixty, but he should have done better. Well, one player who used to stamp his authority just about every time he went out to bat was Sir Viv Richards. And after the break, we're going to hear more from him. He's going to talk about his most famous shot and his favourite shot, which are two different things. Welcome back. We're going to indulge in a little bit of nostalgia now and talk about the, the great Sir Vivian Richards and, and some of his innings. I was driving down the, the motorway back from Birmingham on Sunday and I was listening to the Radio 5 programme about the 1984 series, the, the Blackwash series, and it, I mean, it brings back all those, all those memories of that great West Indian side who actually were at their peak. They won the series 5-0. There was one, well, it's, it thought it was going to be a tight test match, the Lords game, winning with a chance of winning on the final day and then got crushed by nine wickets. Do you prefer England losing 5-0 to the West Indies in 1984 or England crushing West Indies as they did in that first test match at Edgbaston? It sounds unpatriotic to say it, but I think in a way I preferred the 5-0 because it was a contest. Although England got thumped in the end, there were moments in most of those test matches where there, there was a good battle between bat and ball. England had some champion cricketers, obviously Botham, uh, David Gower, Alan Lamb, who was a fantastic batsman against the, the West Indies fast bowlers. And the, the, the skill of the, of the West Indies... That that was the probably the greatest team that's ever lived. That was the, the sort of Harlem Globetrotters of cricket in a way. You know, they were just so multi-talented and they travelled the world and entertained and exhilarated and crushed everybody in, in their sight. And not only the fast bowlers, who were obviously phenomenal, you know, Holding and Marshall and Joel Garner, those three in particular, were all had different assets and, and all had greatness about them. But also, you know, the bat the batting had Haynes and Greenwich and that incredible innings that Gordon Greenwich played at Laws, obviously devastating for England. Two hundred and fourteen, I think it was not out. They chased about three eighty to win. Three forty four it was. Three forty four, thank you for correcting me. Uh for for one. And he played half of the innings on one leg, famously. England's bowling attack was pretty decent in, in that game. And the, the skill of, obviously, Viv Richards and the people who came in after him, Clive Lloyd was captain, it was a phenomenal team. And so I, I don't think you could possibly substitute from a spectacle point of view that with, with the current contest, which isn't a contest. Well, Alan Lamb made 300s in that series for England. I mean, the, the, you know, the England were, they weren't the great side then because they had a few players banned because of the South African Rebel Tours. They weren't a great side then, but it, but it was it was far more competitive. I mean, Lords, as you say, look, England had a chance going into the final day, or seemed to have a chance going into the final day, even at the Oval, when when Agus actually played his first yes, Test match. Right. The Oval, the first inning scores were quite quite close together. England, you know, about thirty behind on on first innings. And the value of having a great West Indies side in world cricket too was underlined. Obviously, they were all conquering at that period, but. It showed a different style of cricket to what any other country plays, really. And now, to look at the, the fading light of, of West Indies cricket now is so depressing because they just lit up the cricket world when they were good. And it, it's almost like this sort of flickering candle now that's almost about to be snuffed out, which is very sad. 
So how many times did you bowl to Viv in your career? Uh, too many times, really. Uh, a a, a lot. It must have been a challenge. You must have thought, well, there's the greats of Viv Richards here. Then. What, what, what a Philip if I could get him out. No, it was a fantastic experience if, 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 you, if you're a sort of masochist, I suppose. Uh, you know, just the spectre of him walking out, strolling out, dragging the bat behind him, looking as if he was a cat who'd just been woken up from a, a little nap in the dressing room, chewing gum, that little maroon cap or light-coloured cap on his head, slightly askew, taking guard, surveying cursorily the field, didn't really care where the fielders were. He was going to whack it where he wanted. And, I, you know, I one experience I had was bowling a, a good ball to an opening batsman for Somerset, broke his finger, he went off, Peter Roebuck, Viv, of course, strolled out like he does to uh, number three. And for once, I thought, well, this is quite a greasy wicket at Laws. I might actually get some, some help here. I might even get the great man out. And I bowled exactly the same ball to, the, to him as I'd broken the finger of the ball before. And he just flicked it off his hip uh, over deep square leg for six. An incredible shot, just totally nonchalant and carried on chewing his gum and sort of... He did that thing where he used to smack the, the top of the handle as well in that, you know, sort of dominant, emphatic way. I did actually get him out once for naught, and I think it was probably because it was Western Supermare, which was an absolute dog-shite park, and he hated being there and he just couldn't wait to get away. And I, so I got him out for naught, but most of the other times it was embarrassing. First time I ever saw him bat live, he was out for naught, caught long on. First ball. <laughs> really? First ball, Fantastic. yeah. Fantastic. Championship match down at Bristol. But his most, one of his most famous innings, famous one-day innings, I know, there are a few of them, of course, is that Lord's final of, of 1979, 138 not out, where she played that in, incredible shot right at the end of the innings when he hit Mike Hendrick for six. He's been, he's been telling you about that, just talking about how the, the shot came about. What about that last ball of the innings where you walked across your stumps and hit a, a ball from about off stump, straight over deep square leg. I mean, that was an astonishing shot. Had you ever played that before? I and tried it before, and um, wasn't that successful. Really? Yeah, but um, it's all about maybe in the end, uh, it's the last ball of the over. You're trying to maximise as much as uh, uh, in scoring. And I just, um, I, I just basically felt that uh, with Mike Hendrick himself, that he'd be looking to go full with the feel that he had set. So... Uh, he was a little bit off-key in, in terms of getting it right. And he just played right into my arm. It was a little fuller, uh, basically a full toss, and just flicked it. And small bound, it was a short boundary towards the tavern side of, uh, of, uh, of Lords. Made you look good in the end, you know. And in the end, I don't, don't know whether you, you saw, just put the bat on the arm. It was like my mission accomplished. <laughs> you know, it was special because um, you finally got, got, uh, got it going. Did, do you ever look at the modern game now and you see, you know, people in the IPL, A.B. de Villiers or, you know, Tilikaratni Dilshan or somebody like that, they walk across outside off stump and flick it over deep square leg for six and everyone goes, wow, what an incredible mm. shot. And you think to yourself, I played that 30 years ago. Without a helmet. <laughs> Without a helmet, Simon, you know. So um, it is. Uh, it goes to show you then that, um, which meant that you, you didn't worry about the fear factor and whether you were going to get a top edge or not. It's just about the things that you were thinking instinctively at that particular time. And is there, an, is there a favourite shot that you played you know, in your career? Or what, what I think more than anything is it depends who, who the quicks. Who the quicks is all about. I can remember 
And it wasn't in a, in a test match or anything like that. We were playing uh, Hampshire, I think at Southampton at the time, and I think it was uh, Mark Nicholas who was captain at, at, at that time also. And I can remember we had a little duel between Mark and Marshall because sometimes the rivalry can be very, very fierce. And I can remember we were chasing 350 in our second innings to win the match. And he just went a touch short and the competition was on. And I was in good nick at that particular time playing for Morgan. And I can remember I creamed this thing and I hit it in front of the square. And I think it was the first time I've ever seen a Malcolm Marshall sort of wilted. It almost took his knees away, took his blood away. And anyone who remember, remember that particular shot, it's a shot that I think up to this day that I still remember. It almost knocked, uh, knocked the flu, uh, the flats, square leg almost over. <laughs> it was um, just something. And I think from that particular shot, I could see that uh, we could have won that match. We were going to win that match quite easily. Malcolm Marshall, the first time I've ever seen him, sort of just wilted. Yeah, and, uh, but that was a great day. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? So Viv, all those innings he's played, all those memorable innings at top level, but he remembers that one shot he played in a county match towards the end of his career as well, because he was playing for Glamorgan then, not Somerset. One shot against Mark and Marshall, and he, he, just, he would just love that rivalry because Marshall was such a great bowler. They didn't face each other all that often, in a way. In fact, his, his record in Caribbean cricket, I don't think, was that good, partly because there were so many brilliant fast bowlers in, in that era that he had to face. But... He was so far ahead of his time. In fact, he said that he learnt one of his shots from watching Barry Richards mm. batting in a county match as well and getting outside leg stump and lifting it over extra cover. But he, he just he had so much natural flair, didn't he? And he just treated bowlers like flies just to swap them, really. One of the great batsmen of all time, if not the greatest batsman. OK, Simon, let's finish with our... Royal London Player of the Week and our low-light highlight. Royal London Player of the Week. We've mentioned him already, Alistair Cook. Just the, the, his incredible ability to churn out runs in any situation. And I, I, I think the concentration levels that he showed... I mean, he batted for 10 hours in that test match at Edgbaston and never looked tired, never looked like he was going to give it away. I mean, you quite like his... Is sort of total ruthlessness, don't you? Even though he was playing against a nondescript attack. Well, the, the, the point being, of course, is in three or four years' time, you know, when he goes past Tendulkar, if he goes past Tendulkar, you know, just to look back and think, no one's going to mention the 243 runs he made against West Indies. But, I mean, they weren't quite burgled, were they? But they were, you know, they're not the, they're not the, the top-notch attack. And his record against West Indies is actually quite good. So, you know, when the sun shines, make hay. Low light... This is, a, this is a strange one, isn't it, this one? The low light. The Sri Lankans banning biscuits in the dressing room. What, what would Mike Gatting have said if he'd banned biscuits in the dressing room at Laws? I think he would have died, probably. He, he would have starved to death. You can't ban biscuits in a, a cricket dressing room. It's part of the staple. It's as important as stumps and bats and balls. Having custard creams and bourbons, those were my two favourites, and those were Gat's favourites, and you had to. there was a sort of unseemly dash for the custard creams, and someone would always eat them first and there'd be sort of half a little bit left. I don't know how you can ban biscuits from cricket dressing rooms. They're, they're as important as tea. Well, apparently that's what happened in the, in the third test match between Sri Lanka and, and India. Sri Lanka trainer said no, no biscuits in the dressing room. Apparently the players went along with it. There was, a, there was some talk that there was a dispute, but that's, that's been denied by the Sri Lankan cricket authorities. You've got to have a bit of fun at cricket and cake and biscuits are part of it. 
Now, highlight of the week, let's um, finish with Stuart Broad and going past Ian both. I mean, that is just a phenomenal achievement to go past both, both of them. I know that he also scored 1,400, which just shows you how, how good he was. But what an achievement from Stuart Broad. Yeah, incredible. I was at his first test match in Colombo, and I don't think he took a wicket. He was about up north for 160 in the burning furnace of the SSC ground in Colombo. And I thought then, mm, you know, he looks a bit lightweight, for uh, a test match fast bowler. He, you could see some ability, but I thought didn't have quite enough pace and didn't have quite, he wasn't doing quite enough with the ball. But over the years, he's developed lots of skills. He's very adaptable, versatile bowler who can still bowl that really incisive spell, match-winning spell. The number of times he's gone through, say, the Australians or another team just burst through and, and, and been unstoppable. Of course, he's taken two hat-tricks for England as well and stayed fit. I thought he was going to do a third to go past Ian Botham because he's on the hat-trick to, to, to break the record or break Ian Botham's record. And the best thing of all, of course, about it is that Ian Botham has spent his life, whenever you have an argument with him and he doesn't agree with you, saying, well, how many test wickets did you get? And, of course, nobody has any comeback. Well, now two people, not just Jimmy Anderson but Stuart Broad as well, do have a comeback. We're going to miss them when they're gone, those two, Jimmy Anderson and, and Stuart Broad. We've really enjoyed them over the years. That's it for this week. You can also subscribe to the analyst Inside Cricket, so you get, just get the programme automatically each week. Just click on the button where it says subscribe. And uh, please continue to leave reviews of this podcast on iTunes. We really would like to know what you think of it and where we can improve or some of the things that you'd like us to talk about. But uh, next week, we'll review the Headingley Test Match. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.